Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. In our passage last week, Jesus prepared for the next stage in his ministry by recruiting some fishermen to follow him, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. It was Jesus who initiated the call to discipleship. The four fishermen, believing that Jesus was the Christ, as proclaimed by John the Baptist, responded to the call immediately. They left their business behind and followed him. The whole situation was unusual, first because rabbis didn't recruit their students. An aspiring student would have to take initiative and pass examinations to earn the right to study under a rabbi. But Jesus chose his disciples for reasons known only to himself. They didn't earn or deserve it, yet nevertheless, they were given the opportunity of a lifetime to participate in the mission of Jesus. That's the same way discipleship works today. God calls people to him, usually by the preaching of his word and the sharing of the gospel among friends. You don't have to pass a test to be a Christian. You don't need to do a certain amount of good works to be in the club. You just need to respond to the call, to believe in Jesus and trust in him to lead you to eternal life. Which brings me to the other thing that made the call of Jesus unusual. He said, follow me. Other rabbis wouldn't say that because they didn't teach their own philosophy. They taught the Jewish tradition. They taught God's law. But Jesus said, follow me. Jesus is the content of the message. By following him, the disciples were invited to learn from Jesus directly and witnessed the events of the gospel as they unfolded before their eyes. His mission of redemption as the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One of God. As the Christ, Jesus had unique authority to speak and act on behalf of God. Whereas the prophets of the Old Testament would say, the Lord says, Jesus could simply say, but I tell you. And Jesus astonished people with his teaching and ministry, as we see in our passage today. The setting is Capernaum, a settlement alongside the Sea of Galilee, where Simon Peter's mother-in-law lived. It also happened to be where Jesus lived after he left Nazareth. It was a decent-sized town, as many as 10,000 people lived there. It was large enough to have a Roman garrison and its own synagogue. Now, if you were reading through the Bible for the first time and had no prior knowledge, you might wonder, what in the world is a synagogue? Because there aren't any synagogues in the Old Testament. The center of worship was the temple in Jerusalem, and it was a big deal when a second temple was set up in Shechem because there was only supposed to be one temple. And that was still the case in the time of Jesus, as the temple had been rebuilt in Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. 
The temple is where animal sacrifice was practiced by the priests. The synagogues were different. They were smaller and located in various towns throughout the ancient Greco-Roman world. Some people think that the first ones may have developed soon after the first temple was destroyed in 586 BC. But the oldest dated evidence of a synagogue is from the third century BC. The Greek word that lies behind our translation means gathering place. They were assembly halls or auditoriums where the Torah, God's law, was publicly read and expounded. This was necessary because most of the people were illiterate and scrolls were hard to come by. And so they were not in private homes, but in community centers. The synagogues were developed as a practical way to teach God's word to his people. As long as there were at least 10 or more Jewish males living in a community, 13 years of age or older, there could be a synagogue. Each synagogue had an official in charge, the ruler of the synagogue, who acted as librarian, director of worship, custodian, and sometimes as a school teacher. But of all the roles they played, surprisingly, it wasn't their job to preach or expound the Torah. Sabbath teaching fell to the laity in the community. Or if a rabbi was in town, then they could be invited by the ruler of the synagogue to teach. Our passage this morning describes a busy Sabbath day in Capernaum. If you ever wanted to know what a day in the life of Jesus was like, this passage describes one. The day began with Jesus teaching in the synagogue, an indication that he was already known and trusted in the community because he was invited to teach by the ruler of the synagogue. Now, we aren't told the actual content of his teaching, but the impact of it is described. And that's often the way it is with sermons. It's, it's a lot of content to absorb and process. It, it stirs up emotions and thoughts. It sometimes prompts you to consider taking action, and, and then most of the content is forgotten. And because of this, some people have questioned the importance of sermons. If we forget what was said, well, then what's the point? But think of it like food. How many of you remember what you ate for dinner three nights ago? Let, let alone the, the daily meals you've eaten all your life. But aren't you glad you ate them? You know, they provided nourishment. They sustained you. Same with the things that happen on a day-to-day -day basis. Years later, you only remember selections of it, and less and less the older you get. But those daily experiences are important. They shape who you are. And so these particular words of Jesus spoken in the synagogue were not recounted, but the impact they had on the people was noted. The audience was astonished because Jesus did not teach like the scribes. Now you might wonder, well, who were the scribes? This is the first mention of them. Earlier I had said that literacy rates were low. Well, the scribes were among the people who knew how to read and write. And not only that, but they studied God's law and were experts in its interpretation, which was important for a Jewish society because the Torah regulated Jewish life. And so the scribes were the chief teachers in a community. Because of that, 
The first seats in a synagogue were, were reserved for the scribes, and people rose to their feet when the scribes entered a room. And the scribes were honored with a title, which means my great one, translated rabbi. But now that Jesus is on the scene, we have the first indication that the power and respect of the rabbis is about to be threatened. Because Jesus was a rabbi unlike other rabbis. Jesus didn't simply repeat the tradition of others. He wasn't just a mediator between the Torah and people. His authority to speak wasn't limited to the written word of God because he had authority in himself, which he received at his baptism. And he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He lived by the Spirit and was empowered by the Spirit. Now keep in mind the historical context. It, it wasn't until the Pentecost after Jesus rose from the dead that the Spirit was poured out permanently on all of God's followers. And so at this point in history, there was only one man with the Spirit of God in him. And he was leading a synagogue service to a whole audience of people who were not filled with the Holy Spirit. He was so out of place that Mark distanced Jesus from the synagogue in verse 23 by referring to it as their synagogue. Not Jesus' synagogue, but the scribes. And this is significant because the synagogues paved the way for churches as the place for Christians to gather, learn, and worship. And the Bible is clear that Jesus is the head of the church. He founded it. It's not our church or my church or their church. It's Jesus' church, and anything less is an indictment. This wasn't Jesus' synagogue, but theirs, and you can see why. The synagogue was run such that a man with an unclean spirit, a demon, could comfortably attend, unthreatened, and no one even knew. Now, sadly, there are places today that call themselves a church, but nothing threatening to Satan takes place there. Buildings where people are made to feel good about themselves and be inspired to do and achieve great things rather than being encouraged to stop trusting in themselves and rely on Jesus. Satan is comfortable in those places. Satan was comfortable in that synagogue until Jesus showed up. Now, when reading about demon possession, it's natural to wonder why it doesn't seem to occur today. I think there could be a few reasons. First, the demons were uniquely threatened by the presence of Jesus because he's their greatest enemy. And he had not yet secured victory over Satan as that happened on the cross and through his resurrection. And so his presence stirred up more opposition which is why there are more encounters with demons in the gospel accounts than anywhere else in the Bible. Secondly, I think we just aren't attuned to the presence of demons because we've been blinded by our Western culture. In other parts of the world where the majority of people believe in the spiritual realm, there's great fear of evil spirits, and so Satan can have a field day tormenting people there. But in the West... It would hardly be strategic for Satan to send his demons to torment people. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen here, but that it's rare because Satan is limited. He is not 
omnipresent, and his army of demons, however many they might be, are finite. Why waste soldiers among people who deny that the spiritual realm even exists? If anything, the presence of evil spirits might encourage Westerners to think of the spiritual realm more than they do, which would not be helpful to Satan's cause. The Satan's goal isn't to be worshipped, but to stop the worship of God. He hates God, and he doesn't care about you or your devotion. So if people want to put their faith and hope and trust in science alone, he's fine with that. Or if people embrace moral relativism where everyone is entitled to their own truth, then he's not going to interfere with what he sees as a good situation. Well, the evil spirit in Capernaum was not in a good situation that day. He hated that Jesus was there. And so the man, compelled by the evil spirit, tried to disrupt the service by shouting, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, the demon was upset because Jesus was disturbing the spiritual devotion of the people. And by spiritual devotion, I mean spiritual blindness. Now, most people, I think, would try to remove such a troublemaker from a place of worship. But Jesus sought to remove the troublemaker from the person made in the image of God. You know, the man wasn't the problem. The demon was. And it wasn't for a lack of knowledge. The demon knew who Jesus was better than anyone else. In fact, his Christology was better than the disciples. He understood the humanity of Jesus, calling him Jesus of Nazareth. And he recognized the divinity of Jesus and his special appointment as the anointed one, calling him the Holy One of God. He also knew that he had no chance. His time was up. He knew that the coming of Jesus meant the end of their unhindered reign. Have you come to destroy us? He asked. His greatest hope was that Jesus would say no because there was nothing the demon could do to stop Jesus. The demon's problem isn't a lack of knowledge about God and Jesus. It's, it's that he hates God and Jesus. They are enemies. It, it isn't enough to believe in God. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, God exists whether you believe in him or not. The important thing is your relationship with him. Are you reconciled through faith in Jesus or not? It's not enough to know about him. You must trust him. Well, the evil spirit had no desire to develop a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus wasn't about to give him the opportunity. And so a spiritual battle was taking place between a man with an unclean spirit and a man with the Holy Spirit. It's totally an unfair fight. Jesus didn't waste any time arguing with the demon. Right away, he exerted his authority over the unclean spirit, telling it to be quiet and come out. And the demon immediately complied. It's interesting to note that he was more obedient to Jesus than the level of obedience we're often shown by our own children who love us. But it wasn't a willful obedience. He was compelled. By a simple word of Jesus, the demon was defeated. The prince of darkness grim, 
we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The evil spirit tried to cause damage as he left, convulsing the man and making him shout. But there was nothing he could do to keep his influence. He was kicked out. This episode got everybody's attention in the synagogue real quick. They were amazed by this rabbi who not only taught with authority, but who also exercised authority over evil spirits. This was no ordinary rabbi. The miracle that took place that morning served to authenticate the person of Jesus as the Messiah. Throughout his ministry, Jesus had to fight to balance between his desire to teach and the people's desire for miracles. The miracles aren't the point, but they are what people seem to care about more. But Jesus' mission was to reconcile God and man, not to heal temporal problems. But we should listen to Jesus because of his ability to fix temporal problems through miracles. After this public display of power, Mark then describes a private display that happened on the same day. After the service, Jesus went to the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And it turns out that Simon's mother-in-law had a fever, which seems fairly minor compared to the demoniac he encountered earlier in the synagogue. They told Jesus about her fever and he had compassion on her and went up to her seemingly without regard for his own health. And he took her by the hand and lifted her up. He didn't need to add a personal touch. He'd already demonstrated his power with just his voice. But he lifted her up tenderly as a sign of his love. The simplicity of this miracle shows that no incantations or spells were necessary. He didn't have to rely on special tonics or other props. That's how other wonder workers operated in that day. But Jesus was not a charlatan, and he wasn't bound to certain methods because his ability to heal didn't come from technique, but from his own authority as the Christ. As he helped her to her feet, the fever left her, and she immediately responded to this miracle by serving Jesus. Now, both miracles, public and private, illustrate the gospel. In both situations, it wasn't the person in need who asked for help. And they were both unable to help themselves. But Jesus did what they couldn't do. They simply responded to what he did. In the same way, we're unable to reconcile ourselves with God. Our sin separates us from God, who is perfectly holy. But Jesus did what we can't. He lived a life of perfect obedience, and his righteousness, earned through obedience, is given to us simply by believing and trusting in him. And we can participate in his mission by telling others about what Jesus did. Both miracles happened on the same Sabbath day, and word quickly got out in Capernaum, so much so that at the end of the day, the whole city was gathered at the door of Simon's house. The Sabbath extended from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. And during the Sabbath, the Jewish people were forbidden to work or even travel. But as soon as the Sabbath was over, 
the people came like a flood. And they brought people who were sick and others who were possessed by demons, and Jesus healed them. The passage ends with the note that Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we will see tension between the fame of Jesus spreading and his attempts to keep things silent. And one reason for the secrecy is because of the expectations that people had for the Messiah. They were convinced that the anointed one would overthrow the Roman government and establish a Jewish kingdom on earth. But Jesus didn't want to build an army because his plan was much greater than simply establishing an earthly kingdom over Israel. He was to be king over all people and reconcile them to their creator. And he would do it at just the right time. But before the time was right, fame would only get in the way of him accomplishing his purpose. But as we will see throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' attempts to keep people silent often didn't work because the people would talk. One last thing we see in this passage is a theme that runs throughout the Gospel of Mark. Questions such as, who is this? Or what is this teaching? Well, they've been answered twice now. First, by the Father in heaven who said, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. And then second, by a demon who said, this is the Holy One of God. The question will continue to be asked. Mark presents the facts with rapid pace, but he wants you, the reader, to answer the question, who is this? Who is this that the demons obey? Who is this that heals the sick? Who is this that teaches with authority? It's a question that you must ultimately answer. Was Jesus just a great teacher? Was he merely a miracle worker? Or was he the Christ, the anointed one of the Lord? And if he is the Christ, what are you going to do about it? Will you put your trust in him to reconcile you to God? Will you tell other people about him. Well, I hope that you will. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 